The following podcast may contain adult language and conversations revolving around situations not suitable for immature audiences. Spoilers and general political incorrectness can often be expected, so listener discretion is advised. They must be destroyed on sight! Okay, welcome to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. We're now at episode 97, so we're getting really close to 100. We'll, we'll be done with the crime series here in the next couple weeks, hopefully. This has probably been the most drawn-out series we've done so far on the podcast, but we are getting there. <laughs> the first sex yeah. comedy series is also pretty long, but uh, this, this yeah. might even be longer. We'll have to look once it's done. <laughs> uh, I'm your host, Lee. If I want to meet people, I'll go to a fucking country club, Russell. And I'm joined by my co-host, Daniel, one of those burned-out, demolished wackos, Harper. How you doing, sir? I'm doing well. I've been watching enough of these films that I'm starting to feel like a, a dark loner with a mysterious past who has complex motivations and an inability to form human relationships outside of my profession. Yeah, yeah. That's the excuse I make, too, for being un- unable to form human relationships. I just don't have the prison time. That's the only problem. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fair. Well, yeah, that could be, that could be solved pretty quickly. I mean, even in Canada, mm-hmm. surely there are things you can go to prison for. It's not, it's not a complete yeah. socialist utopia up there, right? No, I mean, there's there's definitely a couple of things that you can still do wrong in Canada and get more than a slap on the wrist for oh, okay. it. Yeah. Okay, I'll keep that in mind. We're going to be looking at Thief from 1981 this week, but before we do that, we do have a teeny bit of house cleaning to do, so... I'll just mention two comments we got in the last little while. On the YouTube version of our podcast for uh, the Heroin Busters, I got a comment from Nage37 saying, I love this podcast. Thank you for introducing me to Italian cinema and the wonderful music of Goblin. You're welcome. Yeah, cool. That's one of the cool things about this podcast. If we can uh, get people in it basically getting interested in films and shit that they've never seen before, then... Uh, that's a win-win for us as far as I'm concerned. So, And to be uh, fair, we also do it to each other. I mean, you know, I think I think yeah. that goes both ways where there's stuff that I've watched for this podcast I never would have watched otherwise that ended up being really fucking good. And a lot of trash as yeah. well, but a lot of stuff that actually ended up being quite good. So, Yeah. And the other comments from our Facebook group, a recent addition to our Facebook group, Bradley J. Doran Campolina, I believe I'm pronouncing your last name correctly there listening to the conversation about your episode on the conversation nice if you haven't done it yet may i suggest the movie brick i think brick's one we've talked about doing yeah i I think brick is a brick is a requirement for us at some point maybe next year's crime series (laughs) yeah because it's going to be a little while before we get back to crime films just say it's uh, we've done a lot of them it's it's time to move on but uh well, almost time mm-hmm. alone. We still got two more to do, but hey, uh, you, you joined the group there, Bradley. Stick with us. Eventually, we'll get back to crime films, and Brick will be one of the ones we do the next time we pick up this uh, series. So uh, that'll be fun. But uh, and of course, they must be destroyed on site on Facebook. Join the group. It's the best way to have your comments read and uh, interact with us. You know, get on there and get commenting, and you know, either insult us or uh, praise us or uh, just criticize us fairly and reasonably and rationally, and uh, yeah, we'll take that all in. Yeah, no, 
and probably if you, if you if you have anything to say to us, that's the way to do it. We'll read it on air. Whether we take it seriously or not is a completely open question, but uh, you know, yeah, certainly praise we would yeah. take seriously. Yes, no, we are brilliant. Thank you. Yeah, it's with, it goes without saying. But yeah, now we can move on to anything we've watched in the last little while. I don't have anything to mention because I've just been too goddamn busy. But I know you have a couple things there, Daniel, so uh, feel sure. free. Um, I actually watched quite a bit of stuff. I've watched a bunch of like 90s action films, but I'm hoping that we actually do some of those <laughs> in a series down the line. So I'll kind of um, leave that mm-hmm. be. But um, I did uh, two I did want to mention. One, just because uh, watching this film it kind of made me think of it as a... Uh, 1992 film called Sneakers, Robert Redford and Cindy Cloutier. Right. Um, have you seen this film? Yeah, I've seen it. Okay. Um, this is one that I actually saw theatrically back in 1992. Oh, yeah. Which tells you, um, and loved it in 1992, and uh, it actually pretty much holds up. Um, <laughs> it's a story of basically a bunch of aging, uh, well, mostly aging, uh, guys who work in bank security, like breaking into banks and stuff, to um, shore up security. And uh, end up in the heart of a government conspiracy around cryptography. Um, it's got some really great performances. David Strathern is in it. Dan Aykroyd, probably career best outside of Ray uh, Stance. Mm-hmm. Uh, River Phoenix in one of his last roles. Um, right. Yeah. This is a really, really fun movie. Um, and again, Bits of Thief did remind me of that. So I'll probably bring it back up a little bit um, later on. But that's one that I, I don't really see people talking about that movie. And I think it's... Really interesting, particularly in like 2017 perspective, you know, just what it was doing in the 90s. It's a kind of a throwback even then to the sort of uh, conspiracy thrillers of the 70s. It actually sort of has um, visual motifs that connect it to the conversation, ironically enough. So right. it's definitely a film that we should cover at some point. But I just wanted to mention it just on the, uh, you know, bits of Thief kind of kind of have that a similar vibe to a sneaker so uh, interesting movie um and it is streaming on amazon prime right now so if you are an amazon prime person um you can watch it legally and for free yeah i've i, I kind of consider that like the better films more interesting proto version of hackers essentially oh yeah no it's hackers is kind of the um the bubblegum version of this of the yeah. movie and uh, i mean really it should have just been called hackers they call it a sneakers for some i mean they just kind of made up that term but um <laughs> It is it is a lot of fun and uh, definitely uh, worth checking out. There are lots of like Donald Logue is in that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's like the mathematician. I was like, holy shit, is that Donald Logue? It totally is. So um, <laughs> there's there's a lot of it's it's very much like this is what kind of moderately budgeted sort of crowd pleasing entertainment looked like in 1992 as well. It's sort of a bygone era of cinema. Like you just don't. I mean, this is something that we've talked about before on this podcast. You don't see these kind of mid budget but populist films made anymore mm-hmm. things that are sort of made for adults but they're kind of goofy made for adults you know right um, you know it requires that you have enough sort of genre savviness to sort of kind of know where what the film is trying to do it's not made for kids but neither is it's trying to be a you know kind of a super serious oscar Beatty kind of thing either it's it's just mm-hmm. sort of a goofy fun movie and today this would cost you know 150 million dollars and it would have you know Megan Fox or whoever like being sexy and, and all that sort of thing. It, it wouldn't it wouldn't have the sort of goofy charm that this film does. So um, again, yeah. worth checking out. Although I, I would say the probably the only thing that would make sneakers better is if they actually had like a young, attractive Angelina Jolie in the cast. Just well, saying. <laughs> I mean, there are certainly uh, you know I'm, you're never going to complain. I'm never going to complain about you know punk Angelina Jolie circa 1995. Mm-hmm. 
But, you know, she would have been really young in 92 when this film was made. So, you know, we'll, well just to... pretend she went back in time just yeah. just to uh, <laughs> just to stop any possible. Uh... <laughs> I will I will uh, say that there is this sort of interesting. Um... <laughs> I'm not even going to go there. It's fine. <laughs> um, yeah, the, no. uh, the, the, the sex scene between 80 year old Robert Redford and 20 uh, something <laughs> Angelina Jolie. Yeah. Right. Well, he I, was about eighty back then, wasn't he? At that point, he was he was already. Uh, you know, it's funny how young he looks now. Like you know, yeah. because we kind of know what he looks like. You know, another twenty, thirty years down the line. You know, he he definitely he he does not look like a young a young stud anymore. Um, which is, I mean, it's a good look for him. I mean, it's not. I, I don't have any complaint. I actually really like Robert Redford in this film, and I kind of like him overall. But I kind of, you know, curiosity. I kind of started looking at old reviews from ninety two for the film when I was watching mm-hmm. it. And, uh, you know, even then people were like, man, Robert Redford's getting up there in years. <laughs> it's like, yeah, this guy's too clearly not going to have a career for another, you know, 25 years. God, what is the last thing? What was that, that um, prison movie? The last, the last, it's not the last waltz. It's something. Um, um, yeah, it's the one with James Gandolfini. Yeah, yeah but... there's, there's a prison movie with James Gandolfini that I saw like the first half of. And he's yeah. really, he was still really good in that, but he, he definitely looked his age, you know. Yeah, and he's done some stuff since then too. Yeah, some of it's apparently pretty good, but I haven't seen any of it in quite a while. So yeah, yeah. I do have one more thing to mention. Just so, sorry, I was I was just uh, kind of pausing there for dramatic emphasis, but I did get to see the new Guardians of the Galaxy movie. Um, uh, did you say you had seen this? No, no, I haven't seen this yet. Oh, okay, I think it's better than the first one. Honestly, it's well, the first half is really good because it it gets to do the the sequel thing where it doesn't have to uh, introduce all the characters. It just kind of throws you into right. the world and you you kind of know where who everybody is and it doesn't pretend like you haven't seen the first one, you know. <laughs> and so uh, the first half of the movie is actually this sort of really fun, goofy, interesting, almost free from kind of genre expectations, just kind of romp. And then once the plot kind of kicks in, uh, it gets a little bit more generic. And then of course the final third of any Marvel action film has to be, you know, kind of giant CGI things battling each other, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, so it does kind of, it does kind of fade a bit with time, but it's a really fun bubblegum popcorn action movie. Um, and, uh, in, I think, I mean, if you didn't like the first one, you should probably stay away. I mean, it, it doesn't do anything kind of radically new, but it is a little bit more set free from convention, and it's just kind of fun to hang out with these characters if you're, if right. you're on board with it. And it gets uh, surprisingly heartfelt towards the end. You know, a lot of these films do kind of, you know, I don't know, some of the kind of central emotional relationships I'm not necessarily as on board with as the film wants me to be on board with them. But a lot of the stuff from with the uh, kind of the minor characters uh, or the, the kind of secondary characters I tend to find really compelling in ways that are, are, are definitely worth your time. So, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I'm not going to you know, there's there's not an ounce of depth to it for most of its runtime, <laughs> but um, it was a lot of fun. It was a fun little trip to the theater and, uh, and definitely worth at least a rental when it uh, shows up on DVD or something. So and really, I mean, again, if you like the first one, the second one can it's, I was afraid they were going to do way too far with the baby Groot thing. Um, mm-hmm. And there are basically two sequences that are kind of straight up. Look at how adorable baby Groot is. But they don't go on for too long. And it's uh, the, the first one is actually the opening credit sequence. And it's kind of a fun sequence regardless, even if you're not kind of focused on baby Groot. And then uh, the second one is, that one is a little bit, it goes on a little bit long, but it's 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 really just a couple minutes of the movie. And it's kind of worth seeing the movie, even if you kind of just drop that out of your memory a little bit. 
Right. Um, but there's there's a lot of fun stuff in it, and um, I think uh, yeah, no, I, I had I had a blast watching it. It's not gonna be on my best of the year list, but it would definitely be on my most fun of the year list. Cool. I'm gonna watch it eventually. Here, it is on my uh, want to see list. And you know, um, I've I've heard in general that it it is better than the first one. And you saying that it doesn't get too cute for its own good doesn't really surprise me, honestly, because I th- I think James Gunn is a smarter filmmaker than that. Right. He's, I mean, he he does do sort of populist filmmaking, but at the same time, he has a I think he has a bit of a different sensibility than a lot of sort of populist filmmakers do, like J.J. Abrams or or someone like that, you know. Yeah, no, no, I'm I'm def- I'm actually planning on kind of doing a rewatch of all the Marvel Cinematic Universe films, um, oh. just because I I think there's some really interesting stuff. I'm not I'm not doing it like in a serious way, just in a mm-hmm. you know go back and rewatch them in order, um, because a lot of them I really have only seen once. Um, and I'd like to go back and revisit sort of the Iron Man 2 and see what it looks like now that we've kind of seen the later stuff. Right. Um, because I know my wife watched Ant-Man, and I saw a little bit of that. And that was uh, not nearly as bad as it could have been. There's, You know, there's still, like, clever stuff being mined out of it. I think that, you know, to some degree on the big, the bigger franchise films, I think it's there's mm-hmm. a sense that we sort of mined all the dramatic heft we can get out of these at this point. Yeah. Um, and so I think that if the MCU is going to keep going, it has to sort of find ways of being, of being a little bit more low key and being a little bit like smaller scale, which despite the sort of like galaxy ending, you know, threat. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, they, they sort of make up this galaxy ending threat at a certain point in Guardians of the Galaxy 2. And I don't want to, I, I want you to kind of not be spoiled by it. Um, mm-hmm. I don't, um, Kurt Russell is in this, by the way. Yeah. Which, um, he, he's really good in this. Um, I, he's, he's waltzing through it a little bit because uh-huh. it's sort of like Kurt Russell can just do this in his sleep at this point. But that's just yeah. because Kurt Russell is amazing. But, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm definitely interested to get your thoughts. Um, so if you ever do want to actually cover Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, I'd be down for that. There's there's definitely some stuff in this I'd like to chat about at some point. So That sounds like something fun to do, to just take a little, you know, like break between series and stuff, just do a couple films. Yeah, that would be good. Hello and welcome to Hello, This is the Doom Show. I'm Richard. And I hate the burning. Shh, who are you? Speak. <laughs> and I'm Brad. She came in and said, bark, 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 <laughs> and he said, bark, 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 and she said, bark, 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 bark. that's what I got. One is the Suspiria boner, the other is the Inferno boner. <laughs> which, anyway. Which one is crying? <laughs> The boner of tears. <laughs> Hello, this is the Doomed Show. Is available on Hello Doomed Show. and DoomedMovieThon. com. Hello. Great coffee. Mmm. Hey. Hmm? Chad, who 
who's that strange, somber man on the cover of that book you're reading? Oh, that's H.P. Lovecraft. Oh, I've heard of him, but I never really got into his stuff. It's kind of strange and hard to read. Oh, I used to think that, too. But that all changed when I started listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. What's that? The H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast is a weekly podcast. Tell me more. Well, these two really smart and hilarious guys give a synopsis of the story, then they talk about its background, the critical views, and what it says about the author. Well, where can I listen? Well, let me tell you, Chris, you can go to hppodcraft.com or, heck, just subscribe through iTunes. It's that easy. Oh, Chad, I'm so excited. Now I can listen to this podcast and pretend to all my snooty friends that I actually read and understand H.P. Lovecraft. Hey, that's what I do. <laughs> oh, HPPodcraft.com
So, without further ado, we can move on, and uh, we're going to talk about Thief from 1981. Are you clear? You've been putting down two, three scores a month. You want to put down contract scores all over the country, working directly for me? I am self-employed. Geisty lice. Just diamonds or cash. Fine. I'll make you a millionaire in four months. I wear $150 slacks. I wear silk shirts. I wear $800 suits. I wear a gold watch. I wear a perfect D flawless three carat ring. I'm a thief. Do you think that I have been waiting for you to come along? You gonna marry her and have some kids? Yes. Hey, I'm talking to you. Hey. What? What is going on in your life that is so terrific? I'm just, I'm just asking you to be with me. Go. I got a problem. I want my money. We need partners. We in for ten points. I am the last guy you want to mess with. You get paid what I say. You do what I say. You don't know from one day to the next whether you're going to be killed, go home, or get busted. What's wrong with you? James Caan. Thief. Directed by Michael Mann, written by Frank Horimer, uh, based on his novel, and uh, screenplay written by Michael Mann. Starring James Caan as Frank, Tuesday Weld as Jesse, Willie Nelson as Okla, James Belushi as Barry, Robert Prosky as Leo, Tom Signorelli as Atagila, Dennis Farina as Carl, Nick Nickius as Nick... W.R. Bill Brown as Mitch, Norm Tobin as Guido, and there's even a little small role there for William Peterson as Cats and Jammer Bartender. And I'll let you get into the synopsis there, Daniel. Our hero, Frank, James Kahn, is an experienced dual thief and ex-con with a couple of business fronts who is, if you can believe this wacky set of circumstances, the best in the biz who is looking to pull off one last score so he can settle down <laughs> with the ordinary but beautiful Jesse Tuesday Weld and start a family. <laughs> Okay, so that's a bit unfair. After pulling a job, Frank's fence, Joe Gags, is thrown out of a 12-story window for skimming from the mob, and Frank's partner, Barry, played by a very young James Belushi, figures out through a couple of connections that high-level fence Leo, Robert Prosky, is ultimately responsible for the murder and has Frank's cut of the score. Frank confronts Leo in a big open area, which is unbeknownst to the men being monitored by the cops, and after giving Frank his money, Leo offers Frank a proposition. Come and work for Leo, doing jobs all over the country for a set fee, and Leo will take care of the overhead for the jobs. Frank is reluctant at first, but relents, knowing that he can make enough in one or two jobs to retire and go off to live with his beautiful beau. The two have an interesting relationship with an intimate push and pull, and it is largely on her influence that Frank wants to get out of the biz. In a lovely sequence in a diner, while convincing her to stick around with him while he pulls the one last job, Frank reveals his backstory to her and to us. He served 11 years in prison, starting when he was 20 years old, in consequence for an initial $40 theft. To survive, he has had to become cold to the world, not caring whether he lives or dies, a quality that now serves him as he continues his career. Leo sets up the last job, a complex heist on a bank in Los Angeles, and much of the pleasure of the film comes as the professionals set up and execute the breaking of the bank 
bank vault. When Frank comes to Leo for the payday, however, Leo dramatically underpays his new employee, claiming that the bulk of his pay has come in the form of the house, car, and even child that Leo has supplied for our hero. This leads to a series of bloody confrontations in which the last man left standing is, of course, Frank, walking off in the distance, having gained virtually nothing for his efforts, but at least, in some sense of the word, free. Yeah, excellent. Is this the first time you uh, watching this for for the podcast? It is. In fact, I watched it for the first time this morning, and I definitely <laughs> want to rewatch this. This is really fucking good. Yeah, so uh, we'll we'll just get right into your sort of uh, initial impressions on this one then. Sure. I mean, my overall thoughts are uh, kind of summarized a little bit there. I mean, there's a little mm-hmm. bit of a. I mean, when you watch a lot of these films in a row, as we have. The form kind of becomes the thing that <laughs> they do follow a formula. You know, you've got this man with a dark past right. uh, who, you know, the the whole point is we're we're supposed to kind of feel his man pain and get into the uh, the intricacies of his psychology. And there, so like, why am I? Why is he a loner? Is is kind of the the big question. And and what does he do? And why does he do what he does? And I mean, you know, but at some point that's that's just sort of the genre, and you just sort of get along with it or you don't. And this one is exceptionally well made. I um, really appreciated the sort of intrigue, not even intrigue, but the uh, the sort of, the, there are a lot of forces at work here that are a lot of kind of moving parts, kind of central to Frank's existence as this um, jewel thief, as this, you know, kind of professional. You know, you get to see his world. There's a lot of technical detail that's really fun, sort of the way that they break into the vault and the way that they, um, you know, uh, James Belushi's character <laughs> uses technology in some interesting ways, which is which is fun. You really get the sense of, you know, like uh, Frank's hiring this uh, kind of old metallurgist guy to uh, help him um, build this uh, giant lance that he's going to use to yeah. uh, break into the vaults. And, you know, so so uh, Frank has his own sort of, you know, contractors that he's working with, people that are very good at their jobs as well. And uh, it's just, I mean, on that level, it's just a lot of fun. I love the relationship between Frank and Jesse, between uh, Tuesday Weld and James Kahn. Mm-hmm. I really bought that. I mean, you know, this is another one of those films where... You know, it's not that, you know, Tuesday Weld looks amazing in this, but she's clearly in her late 30s at this point. Right. And, uh, you know, it would be really easy for him to just sort of like, uh, for the film to kind of be around, be about this guy and then this kind of young ingenue uh, mm-hmm. who who doesn't really know anything. Who, But, but uh, she has her own past. And uh, I think if, if anything, if there's anything that suffers in the film, it's always what suffers in these kind of films, which is we don't get enough of a sense of who she is and she just kind of moves around as the plot wants her to. I also think the film's maybe a tiny bit too long. There are some subplots that seem significant to the characters but don't really go anywhere. Um, mm-hmm. the, uh, uh, Willie Nelson plays Okla, who is a guy who um, has kind of served in prison with Frank. Frank kind of arranges to get him out and then he just kind of dies. <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, I know that that means something to the character, but it's sort of it's it's a little bit of the film that just kind of doesn't really go anywhere dramatically um, in a lot of ways. It, it's it's a little bit of a distraction in terms of you know just you know us sitting and, and watching the film. But but overall, I think it's a, a really well executed film. Um, I just think it, it kind of it drags just a little bit. It's a little bit slower paced than I'd like it to be. Um, this one runs about about two ten. I'd like yeah. it to be more like an hour 45. I think it would be a little bit mm-hmm. healthier pace for it. But overall, it's a really fucking good film, and uh, I'm glad I got to see it. It's, it's long been on my list of movies to see. So this was this was just, uh, I finally got around to seeing it, which is always the fun thing about doing the films on this podcast. Yeah. It's an excuse to do what I was going to do anyway, eventually. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think I can recall uh, recommending this to you several times mm-hmm. over. So uh, yeah, I'm glad you finally got to watch it and enjoy it. Um, it does feel like a little bit, just one more thought, it does feel like a little bit of a kind of warm-up for heat. Um, yeah. 
I know that uh, Mann had written the kind of initial screenplay for Heat but long before, or at least a couple years before he made this film. Mm-hmm. Um, and it feels like they kind of share similar DNA. So what I'd like to do is to sit down and watch them both kind of back-to-back because I think that there is... Um, it would be interesting to see kind of where... You know, because this is Mann's first theatrical release film, um, and yep. it would be interesting to kind of compare this with the thing he made, you know, 14 years later, which is the more famous, in quotes, film. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it kind of deals with some of these same themes. But, I mean, honestly, I think Thief is better. Um, but it has been, like, 20 years since I've seen Heat, so... <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the most impressive th- things about this is, uh, although he did do one film previously, it was a TV movie, I think it was mm-hmm. called Jericho Mile or something along those lines. It was a prison film. You can sort of see he's what he wants to do on film, his sort of style and, and, and the way he wants to present everything is kind of almost fully formed here in his very first film. It's like he's pretty much just, just you know, sort of knocked it out of the park right away. Like, he's he's got... Visually, he's got performances, he's got details of the plot, the, the minutia of being a professional heist guy. He's got all that jammed in here, and he's got it all working very, very well. I mean, you're right, it is a little too long, so it does drag a little bit, but when you get into these really cool details of just scoping out a place to take down a score, and then getting into the the details of him having to go around to the people he contracts out to get his equipment and to arrange all of that and to, to figure out how much time he needs to break into this place. And then finally, when they get into the actual heist, all the time he actually spends showing you Frank and his team putting their equipment together, using their equipment, the sort of things they have to go through to find the alarms and then tap the alarms and keep them from going off. I enjoyed all of that. And it's this interesting. Is, this is one of those films that actually uses a voltmeter where you're like, yeah, that's a really <laughs> good use of a voltmeter in cinema. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how often have you seen the like really shitty voltmeter sequence? Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. And, and, and I, I love that he takes the time, like you said, again, it does drag in certain parts, but in parts like this, where he actually does take the time to show Belushi going through wire by wire when they, when they cut into the, uh, when they cut into the building there, they take like two minutes or, or more where he's just tapping different wires to try to find the alarms. That's really good. Like it, it, it works really well. It's, it's worth the, it's worth the time. Well, you get a sense of exactly what these guys do and why this is, uh, yeah, you, know, you know, it's not like that's complicated and it's not like it's, mm-hmm. you know, if you just describe it, it's not like, Oh, it's riveting cinema. I'm not sitting and thinking, my God, are they going to find the right wire? But, uh, portraying that world and kind of giving us that verisimilitude is a lot of what makes the film worthwhile because mm-hmm. if we didn't get that, this really would be just kind of, oh, another generic movie about a guy trying to get out of the business, you know? Yeah. So in a sense, the slightly generic plot, which I, I do want to talk a little bit about, the ending in particular, the kind of last 30 minutes, because it does kind of go off the rails and it gets really more interesting in the last 30 minutes. But there is a sense in which the the uh, setup is generic because it's trying to um, kind of give us this other material. And I think that's mm-hmm. what really elevates it and why it's still worth watching. Right, right off the bat, you have this thing that man keeps going back to where he's got the cool professional who is all about his job, like to the point where he's almost addicted to it, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you definitely see this in Heat later on, of course, because but you get both sides of the coin. You get the detective and the 
professional thief who are both basically obsessed with their job and everything else is just an afterthought really but yeah i really like this that basically frank has had to basically deaden himself to everything outside of himself in the world he doesn't really have time for anybody else unless he decides to make the time for for somebody you know if, if that's one of his goals in life like he's he's got this plan he, he's gotten out of prison he's in his mid-30s now he's got this plan that i'm gonna make my money I'm going to find a wife, I'm going to start a family, and that's the dream, that's the ideal, and he's eager to jump on it, like, he, he knows he's well, running out of time. He's he's made this collage, right? I mean, he, he's, he's literally, he literally carries around this photo in his pocket, which is this collage of, like, stuff he wants in his life, and uh, he kind of takes that and looks at it every so often, which... You know, again, the way I'm describing it, it sounds really generic and hackneyed, but uh, in the way that the film works, and, and particularly just the layout of the thing, like, it's... You know, this Frank is not some badass, and I think that I, I guess we should eventually talk about the ending. Um, but but I think Frank is Frank is really kind of one of those little guys that we've kind of talked about a couple of times. Of you know, oh, this is the film that follows the little guy around. Frank mm-hmm. is not. I mean, he's he's kind of got this. Uh, he's got a pretty good life at the beginning of the film. I mean, he's got these yeah. two businesses. He's got a bar and a car dealership. I mean, this is this is a successful guy. This is a guy who, you know, has only been out of prison for a few years at the at this point, and yet has kind of built this up. And I mean, partly it's because like he's he's stealing jewels and you know <laughs> just using them to to finance his shit. But like, this is a guy who could leave instantly if he wanted to. I mean, you yeah. know, like he could he could do that and just sort of. And so the question in all these things is, well, why does he keep doing it? And um, I think the film doesn't really give us a clear answer to that. I mean, I'm okay with the ambiguity on that. But I think that you know a lot of the ways that these films work is to uh, kind of give us a sense of who these people are, and I think the answer we get from Thief, and again this is on a for on a, on a one viewing, you know, but uh, I think the answer we get is that that Frank is ultimately he's still that guy who's twenty years old who stole mm-hmm. forty dollars and ended up spending eleven years in prison for it. I mean the story is that he spent he was sentenced to two years with a six month uh, probation, and then. Um, the things he had to do in prison uh, extended his sentence, which is yeah, very realistic. Um, yeah, there's you... this. There's this. Sorry to interrupt, but there's oh. this story that he that he relates of he learned while in prison that he was in line to be basically a victim of a rape gang. Mm-hmm. One one thing about him, yeah, he's not he's not a badass per se, but he is a tough motherfucker who doesn't back down at all. Like you, you push him, he pushes back. So he he basically uh, beat up several of these convicts who came at him and and killed one guy eventually. The uh, beating he gave him eventually killed him, and that got him more time in in prison. Yeah, because of that. What where I land on this is, you know, he he is a badass, but you can see him very much as a victim of the system. I mean, this yes. is a guy who stole forty bucks mm-hmm. and uh, ended up in this world. And then once he's in the world, there's no way for him to get out of it. And this is kind of all he knows. Yep. And um, you definitely get a sense in his performance that he wants a child and he wants a family and he wants a wife and he wants all these things because, you know, sort of that's programmed into these are the things you should want. You should get out right. of it and then want these things. But I don't, I don't think that Frank really has any idea about why he does things. And I think, sorry, I'm kind of talking it out and kind of reasoning my feelings of the film right now, which is the joy of, only having watched it this no, morning. but I mean, you're you're exactly you're exactly right. I think I think you're right on the on the uh, you, you, you're you're picking it up perfectly because yeah, I mean, that, I, that, I think the that, logic is that that 
you know, he is this sort of broken guy who doesn't really know why he's doing things half the time. I mean, he goes and he he's uh, he wants a child, but he doesn't seem to he doesn't seem to care for the child. I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's a status symbol. It is now I'm a normal man. I have a child. You know, right? You know, he does seem to care for Jesse. I think I think there is a, a real interesting relationship there. And again, I wish we got a little bit more of her perspective just to sort of give us that balance in, in terms of like, well, what is she getting out of this? How does she see Frank? And I think we don't quite get a sense of her psychology enough to really, you know, go there. But I think she does care for him. And yeah. uh, I think that that's realistic that, that'll, that, you know, there are plenty of stories of good women who have, you know, loved men who don't deserve them, you know. Mm-hmm. And, I, and overall, I think it's, it, it is a really interesting portrait. Um, but I think there are some, you know, it, I, you know, I can nitpick it a little bit, you know. Yeah. Um, I, and I think that that's a, to a degree, that's a mark of, the quality of their performances and the quality of the uh, of the script in the in the film is that you know something like the driver, um, which you know is sort of a very similar story in some ways to this. You know, it's designed to be this like almost abstract picture of like uh, archetypes, whereas this seems very rooted into like who these actual people are, and it gets away with that partly because of the just the level of verisimilitude and that this feels really real. Like this does yeah. not feel like an abstract fable. This feels like something that like real people are actually doing, mm-hmm. and it, the way it sells that is with uh, things like uh, you know spending two minutes putting a voltmeter to wires, and right. then using the oxyacetylene torch to uh, to light the thing. And you know, I mean, you know, and uh, the guy who's sitting there with the fire extinguisher, you know, yeah. <laughs> blowing out the the sparks as they land. I mean, there's there's a uh... that's a that's a great detail too. It's what other movie would think of that yeah you're probably gonna set the fucking room on fire using that fucking thing so you should probably have a fucking uh, fire extinguisher right there <laughs> right right uh no it's 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 a brilliant little i mean that little sequence is just i mean i mean a it's you know it's brilliant in the sense of you know just getting to watch how this stuff works i mean i just love i'm you know i'm a chemist so i just love any like oxyacetylene <laughs> torch it just makes me happy it's it's this brilliant chemical reaction it's it's basically thermite it's it's amazing um but also it's beautiful like you you watch it you watch him work and it's it's both kind of dirty and grimy and beautiful and then once he's actually into the vault you just get this sense. I mean, he pulls up a chair, this like you know chair that's sitting mm-hmm. in the lobby, and he and he sets it upright and he sits down and he uh, like pulls off his um, the hood that was keeping yeah. him safe and he pulls off his gloves and he just like kind of, <sighs> you know, and that kind of like you just see all the life kind of draw out of him where like he's in, he's done his job, now it's just time to get the fuck out. But he's taking a breather while they're like collecting the jewels, and that's such a, it's such a human moment. I guess right. is where I'm going for. Yeah, but no, you you are right on on his character essentially. I mean, he's he is this uneducated this guy who's had a stunted growth. I saved this quote from Michael Mann that came from an interview that perfectly kind of outlines this what his intention was for James Caan's character. He says basically the idea of creating his character was to have somebody who has been outside of society, an outsider who has been removed from the evolution of everything from technology to the music that people listen to, to how you talk to a girl, to what do you want in your life, and how do you go about getting it. Everything that's normal development that we experience, he is excluded from by design. In the design of the character and the engineering of the character, that was the idea. So, I mean, you do see that. I mean, everything that he's basically looking for is something that someone else has basically programmed into his head. Like, in in part, it's his relationship with Okla. 
yep. in prison that basically, you know, sort of a father figure saying to him, you got to, you know, you got to get out of here and you got to make something of yourself. And so that's kind of beaten into his head like like a father would beat lessons into into a child, you know. And I don't mean beat physically. I mean, you yeah, know, no, sort of just, pound, just, pound that yeah. message. No, I, one of the things that's, well, and God, that's, well, then we get into the father figure. So, uh, let's, let's set that aside for, for just a moment. Mm -hmm. But I think one of the interesting things is to think about the years that he's in prison, because, I mean, this is a movie made in 1980. It's set in 1980 because he says he got out in 76 and that was four years ago, released Mm -hmm. in 81. So, um, and then he did 11 years. So he was in prison from you know 65 to 76 i think is what they say in the film mm-hmm. uh, third, a third of his life is gone well, well yeah but those are also very particular years you know like mm-hmm. it's it's not just it's not just that he was in prison for a long time but he basically went in just as the hippie movement was starting and then was right. in prison through the whole of that era and then the kind of 70s malaise and it's gotten out and it's morning in america and, you know, living well, in the beginning yeah. of the Reagan years, which, you know, I don't want to just make everything political, but like the idea that that era is exactly what he missed. So he's almost this atavism of the 50s, who's just sort of living in this sort of early 80s, you know, post Carter right. malaise. And, um, you know, what the fuck does that mean for him? You know, well, uh, yeah, I was thinking about that because there's an offhand comment from Okla where he's where he's talking to him when they when they first meet. Uh, there in the film in in the uh, the prison mm-hmm. uh, basically Okla starts talking to him about how things are going down in prison mm-hmm. since he left and he's and he's talking about how they just let anybody in now he's like before now a lot of these people would just be sent right to the funny farm and I was kind of wondering if that was a sort of sly little comment on sort of the 1980s uh, policies on mental health that that were sort of coming into play. I, I don't know when Reagan started letting people out of mental hospitals, you know? I, well, I think it was right around this time, wasn't this it? This is, this is, I mean, Reagan would have come into office in, uh, at the end of 1980, you know, so so okay. this is, this is, I mean, it's made in sort of the, the tail end of the Carter administration, um, and it's sort of set, you know, it's before Reagan had really kind of come in, so so it's kind of, okay. it's a little bit unfair to say, you know, this is Reagan in action, Um because it's really more yeah. Carter, but it's it's definitely sort of that beginning of the carceral state. It's you know the the kind of social mores around, for instance, drug use and around the way that uh, we're going to treat people. You know, we're going to do extended sentences and, and those kinds of issues is definitely right. kind of in play at this point. I mean, this is set in Chicago, and I mean, God, we could talk. Uh, or that sequence is uh, is is in. I guess it's in Joliet, but it's it's in Illinois, and so we can, you know. I'd have to like kind of look in and kind of go into the details of exactly where the political situation is, but um, mm-hmm. there is this sense. I mean, a, I you know I kind of read like it's a it's Willie Nelson playing Okla, so you know yeah. it, it's kind of you know they let anybody in here these days. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of um, you know it's a little bit incongruous when you when you think about that, but um, this is yeah. this is before kind of mass incarceration on a major scale of basically when you know the United States government just started going after black people in a serious way. Uh, So, so it is almost a product of that bygone era and it's sort of looking forward to that era of where we're just going to start the war on drugs is going to start. And you know, all of this is just going to get way, way worse. So it's always interesting kind of looking at stuff that happened, but you know, like the commentary is there, even though the, the policies hadn't yet, because it's sort of swimming around in the culture, obviously, you know, uh, California, at this time was not what California is today. 
and um, they were a much more kind of draconian, strict, you know, kind of a prison system. California was a Republican stronghold at this point. You know, let's just mm-hmm. look at that. So I think that there is this sort of sense of something Michael Mann might have been seeing in the culture. But I think the particular, you know, the, one of the things that's really interesting here is the particular time and place this film was made seemed to really influence some of the way that it's made and the, uh, yeah. the sort of the, just the look of it and the context of it. It's hard, you know, you look at anything that's made 36 years ago and uh, you can't kind of look at it with 2017 eyes you have to look at it with 1981 eyes yeah. but at the same time from 2017 we can see things that are just kind of there in the film that maybe they weren't even really thinking about in 1981 certainly mm-hmm. for a first film from a from a new filmmaker yeah but the, the the neat thing about man is that he's always he always sort of seeks out professionals on both sides of the <laughs> coin as far as this stuff goes so he's always getting people uh from both law enforcement and former criminals to be basically part of his his productions for his films you know yeah so the guy who plays the cop one of the one of the cops in the mm -hmm. is actually a a real life um ex-con which is yeah great you know and just basically a lot of people who who uh were in the production you know giving technical advice and uh, and stuff like that were were ex-thieves or ex-police i mean this was dennis farina's first role and he was a former cop yep. at, at this point he really sort of draws from those details he draws from people who have spent time in prison so they actually know what the fuck they're talking about so he does sort of painstakingly go to get those details right and that's sort of what makes this whole world believable in the first place because you get those little small details that just make everything feel authentic and make the characters sound authentic. Sound like they know what the fuck they're talking about instead of just running off some sort of cliched crime film lines. Yeah. Despite kind of having a little bit of a kind of the big picture structure is, mm-hmm. uh, it's a little bit like, okay, generic guy trying to get out of, of the job, yeah. you know, it does seem to, uh, feel lived in, in, in mm-hmm. the specifics because I mean, you know, these things are cliches for a reason, you know? Yeah. Probably the one thing, and, and this is this is actually, I mean, something we could probably argue, is that, I mean, the film sort of says, like, this guy's really good at what he does, but I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know, you know, you kind of look at what he does, and really what he does is he just kind of hires people to, like, right. <laughs> figure it out for him. You know, I don't, I don't, and that's just through connections that he probably made through prison, you know? So yeah, to I think it's, certain I think it's, Sorry, but uh, yeah, I think I think it's basically kind of stated that he learned how to do all this through Oklahoma. He's not necessarily a master criminal. He just has the right connections and knows how to use them. Right, which is uh, which be- is a very different kind of thing than like the driver who. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I I don't dislike the driver. I'm just saying like it's a very different thing, where that guy is actively portrayed as the absolute best. Yeah, at what he does. Whereas I think this is just a guy who sort of is good at what he does is sort of ruthless in his pursuit of it. That's kind of a, a different sort of angle, which I think is interesting. Yeah, no, again, he's, he is, he is a guy whose growth was stunted in prison. He is uneducated. There are times in the script where Frank's character says certain things that are just slightly wrong. At one point he says elected id, um, <laughs> And and that was intentional to to show that he is uneducated and that most of the time when he talks he does sound very you know very short but very you know focused and says exactly what he needs to say and I think the idea was that his character sort of trained himself to speak like that so 
you know, to, to make himself sound more professional and, and educated than he actually is and to sort of give him a bit of a persona when dealing with other criminals or whatever. But, but yeah, he, he essentially is a, a guy who is not the, the master fucking thief. He, he's not Robert De Niro's character from Heat. Right. Essentially. Right. Yeah. yeah, no, which is which is good. I mean, I, and, I, and I think that it's sort of the. Uh, I mean, I was kind of making. Yeah, you know, I was playing around with the idea in the in the synopsis, but I think the you know just the idea that we're following this film around and the fact that Leo kind of comes to him with this uh, sort of like attitude of like you're really good. You know, I don't think it actually sort of says you're the best ever. I think it's just like, oh, you've got a good eye. I want to hire you. You know, and uh, yeah, I think we should probably talk about Leo at this point. Yeah, this is uh, Robert Prosky, and this was his first role as well. Was it really? Wow, that's interesting. Fifty years old, first role. Yeah. Wow. Um, I mean, he's really good in the film. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think it's interesting that he initially approaches a Frank mm-hmm. with a sort of business proposition, and then once yep. he's sort of agreed to come along for his own reasons, he sort of is trying to ingratiate himself, and he's trying to say, "No, no, no, you think of me like your father." And so, yeah. so there is this sort of, I, he's trying to kind of set himself up as the father figure, whereas, right. and this is the one thing where I, you know, I kind of was saying, well, the Okla storyline doesn't go anywhere. Maybe not quite true because it does sort of set up this duality to where Okla is the kind of initial father figure, and mm-hmm. um, Leo is trying to set himself up as the sort of replacement for that. Yeah. And uh, gives, I mean, he basically just sort of sets Frank up. I mean, he gives him a house, mm-hmm. he's got a car. I mean, he literally says, oh, you want a baby? I can get you a baby. What kind of baby do you want? I mean, you know. Yeah, I mean. Black he, chinks, you know, whatever. <laughs> God, you know. Um, but yeah, he, he is a mobster, and once you're in the mob, you're in the mob for life, essentially. It's sort of fascinating where at first I think we can, like, I think as an audience, and this is, I, I don't know, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, obviously, but, um. I think as an audience, we sort of initially approach this as, well, there's got to be something ulterior kind of going on. There's, there's something mm-hmm. on the surface. He's not literally going to get to do one or two jobs and then get to leave. But, you know, I think, you know, certainly my response is he's sort of playing fair. He's just trying to, you know, sort of ingratiate him in friendship and in, in sort of this build this relationship. But then, you know, once the job is done, he literally gives him like 10% of the money he was promised. and says, well, yeah, the rest of it is in. I set you up with all these businesses, and I set you up yeah. like I've, I've I've done all this other stuff for you, and that's what that's what part of your payment is. And uh, it's like, no, fuck you. That's not what I want. I wanted the money so he can get out. And it's like, yeah, you don't get to get out. Like I mean, you know. And then and then Leo considers Frank ungrateful, and I and, mm-hmm. and uh, there is this sense of I mean, I don't know if we're supposed to see Leo as actually thinking that Frank is being ungrateful or if he's just trying to manipulate Frank. But then, you know, once once the sort of after the violence starts and, um, you know, he's kind of got Frank by the balls. I mean, he's kind of like, look, dude, you're going to come work with us. And I, I think he's hurt that Frank didn't take his offer. But I think he's also, you know, like, I, I, I control you now at this point. Like, you agreed mm-hmm. to do this. I've given you all this stuff. I can take all this away in a heartbeat. And if you're not going to take the carrot, I'm going to give you the stick. And um, I think that's a... I mean, it's kind of deeply capitalist, you know, in this, right. you know that the uh, that the uh, sort of capitalist uh, control of, of our society is sort of done through this mechanism of um, the friendly avuncular uncle face sort of thing, thing a lot of times, you know. I think Leo does sort of see himself as a, a provider, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and he, he does think of himself that way. 
And I think essentially the relationship he has with Frank is that of someone who buys a dog from the dog pound and, you know, fully intends, oh, I'm going to be I'm going to be the benefactor. I'm going to be the provider, benevolent, lovely owner of this this puppy and the puppy's going to love me. But no, the puppy the puppy ends up biting him. Yeah. And 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 then, of course, then, okay. well, if it's going to be like this, then you're getting the worst dog food. You're only going to be taken outside to piss and shit and that's it. And the rest of the time you're going to be on a chain and and you're not going to get to walk around the house or do anything. And if you're going to get any love, it's going to be when I decide to show you love and, and nothing else. So I think there is that kind of just spurned owner kind of relationship with like a a dog that bites you or something along those lines it it feels like that to me well you get the sense and i mean that's a a it's just this horrifying sequence um where you know it's just how um just how much she'll i've got you by the balls uh it's it's an amazing little bit of performance i mean it's only a minute or two of the film but it it just Mm -hmm. burns itself into my brain there there is this sense of like look you're gonna make the decision to stick with me i've like i kind of led you along I kind of told you some things. I gave you not what you wanted, but what I was going to give you. I lied to you, but ultimately, you're going to come along with me, and ultimately, you're going to see that this is the best thing for all of us. You know, and, and, yeah. I, and I think that he really does have that perspective. You know, it's not a sense of, you know, he. I think he really does see him as family, but he's like, look, you're you're fucking up. You don't need to leave. You need to stick with what you know. I'm, mm-hmm. We're all going to make a lot of money off of this and um, get with the program, and I and I think there is yeah. that sense. And um, and then when Frank uh, comes around and just says like, "No, I'm going to just burn it all to the ground," in a way, that's a very childish decision, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Well, again, I mean, by the time he gets to that point, again, like we were talking about, how he is stunted growth. Like he's essentially still that kid who went to prison. He never really grew up he deconstructs in the final act of the film and he just basically tears all that artifice away of of this uh this grown man that he sort of pretends to be he just he he tears it back down to the core of what he really is and he's he's really just a, a lost kid who doesn't know what he wants and he's cold to the entire world and he just sort of reverts back to that jailhouse mentality at the end of the film yeah i mean he he forces his wife i mean are they actually married or mm. I mean, he introduces well, they, they, his wife. I mean, I, 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 it doesn't really matter. I mean, ultimately, they, they have never to. show a marriage, but you know. Yeah, I mean, whatever. So what is it? Doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, I really, I mean, I, I do really love that relationship, and I love that scene where he, he basically just says, uh, you know, go here. He gives her four hundred and ten thousand mm-hmm. dollars, and uh, it's like, you know, okay, well, you give Joe twenty thousand the first month, and you give him a little bit more every month, and he'll protect you, and and everything's going to be fine for you, et cetera, you know, go and build a new life for yourself. But he has to be really harsh in doing it. And, and, uh, it is this sort of, I get this sort of sense of, and this is completely Khan's performance and then, uh, Welt's performance as well. I get the sense that, that he's sort of forcing himself to like, he, he started to care. He really did care for this. He wanted this, Mm -hmm. but like, he's just decided he can't have it where, right. I mean, realistically, like once he kills Leo, he can just go do whatever at that point, right? Like mm-hmm. there's, a, you know, it, it really is this a very short-sighted uh, kind of adolescent decision. Like, well, if I can't have, if I can't have this, I can't have. If it isn't going to work the way I thought it was going to work, then like fuck it. And that's very much the twenty-year-old right. who stole forty dollars and went to prison for it for eleven years. Yeah, you know? he, he convinces he convinces himself that no, no, at the by the end of the film that 
no matter what he does, he's not going to have that life on that postcard that he was gunning for, and so he burns it all to the ground. Right. Which, I mean, which, I mean the, but, but realistically, what I'm going for is, like, I think that the film, and I don't know that the, I think the film was trying to say he's wrong. I mean, I certainly, like, um, from, I... I, I kind of interpret it that way as well, honestly. Yeah, yeah. like like it, like it's his stupidity that leads him mm-hmm. to do this because and and it, and it is this sort of sense of a kind of wounded masculinity where he's not able to communicate to his his bride and right. he can't just have the happiness, you know. Like he could have figured it out at that point. Yeah, but um, especially I mean, four hundred ten thousand dollars in you know in nineteen eighty money is like one point five million or something in today's money. That that's an yeah that's another bit of his short-sightedness right because he's saying he's running out of time and he's making up for all this lost time and this is a guy with two successful businesses tons of money put away from all these heists he's done right he could retire like you said he could retire easily retire he could could, be happy he could retire and i mean even if even if his businesses aren't like super successful they will bring in enough money he has enough of a nest egg that he that he doesn't need any of this and, and I and, yeah, and I don't get the sense that like he's doing this out of like professional obligation. I think he's just kind of an idiot. And I think the film Yes. I wish the film put its finger on that a little bit more and kind of like portrayed that. But I think you do get it from the film. I just I just wish that um it was I just wish that element of it was a little bit better portrayed. Um because Yeah, because I think the film kind of treats him as a little bit of a Western hero, and I think that's kind of the the big thing, like kind of the ending to where he kind of walks away wounded but like free. Mm-hmm. For me, I, I respond to that, and it's like, no, you you fucked up, dude. <laughs> you know, yeah. this is not the way to handle this situation. This is not the way to handle any of this situation. You should have left earlier. You know, I uh, I think the film knows that. I think the film kind of visually, at the very least, paints it as more tragic than anything else because where the the final camera shots at his back and he's walking off into the darkness. And I mean, the entire visually speaking, the entire film is just dark and damp and depressing. So it's not like he's walking off to any sort of great light or anything, right? you know, nothing shining at the end of the tunnel. Like the few times you see daytime, it's usually uh, set on an ocean I don't I don't know visually what sort of metaphor he might man might have been going for there but um there's like moments of clarity where it's daytime but most of the time it's nighttime and it's dark and it's damp and rainy and shitty and that's where the film sort of ends on that note so Yeah. I guess I see it as easy to misread the film but I think I mean I do think yeah. the film is ambiguous about the way it it does sort of portray this guy and it's sort of like okay here's uh, here's sort of what this guy does and I and I guess like I sort of like kind of got a certain reading out of it, but I don't know how much the kind of standard audience watching this would respond to that and not go like, well, yeah, he walks off, he's a hero at the end because he killed the bad guy, right? You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's just sort of a uh, you know not not necessarily knowing on one viewing exactly how I think man is intending us to respond to that, but I think it's a perfectly I mean I think it's a perfectly valid reading that I mean obviously it's my reading so I think it's a valid reading yeah. that, that that Frank is kind of an idiot and uh, idiot's a little bit of a slur I apologize but but Frank is not behaving rationally here he's actually doing really silly things he should be doing mm-hmm. things differently but I just wish the film put its finger on that just a little bit more I don't know that it's quite as clear as I'd like it to be in terms of the way the film is made but you know maybe on subsequent viewings I'm going to kind of respond to that differently this is sort of initial viewing you know finished you know an hour ago so (laughs) 
Which is yeah, an interesting uh, way. Usually I've got like a day at least to uh, to think about these films before I record on them. So uh, this, is a, this is a new experience doing a They Must Be Destroyed where I've only seen the film an hour ago. Nice. But yeah, I think you, uh, I think you did fairly well for, for doing that because I think you picked up on a lot of the same stuff I did. And I'm pretty much in total agreement with you. So I guess maybe just mention the uh, there's, a, there's a really awesome Tangerine Dream score here. Yep. Originally... I guess man was considering making it like totally a uh, sort of a blues based kind of score, sort of a Chicago blues kind of thing. But then he kind of felt like something more uh, electronic, more synth based would fit sort of Frank's kind of cold uh, professionalism and his just his sort of outlook on life, you know, where he's again, it goes back to he, he missed his formative years where he would have, you know, developed taste in music and culture and stuff like that. So the, the music much more uh, echoes what's going on inside him instead of what he would, you know, like otherwise if he hadn't been in prison for a third of his life. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, that's interesting. And um, also, you know, for me, the uh, it does kind of connect me back to Drive. Not the driver, mm-hmm. but Drive in terms of the score. And, uh, Having seen this now, like, well, yeah, Wendy Griffin was definitely kind of pulling from this a bit when uh, mm-hmm. when he kind of picked that score. But, um, yeah, I love the score. I mean, tan- this is this is sort of the golden age of Tangerine Dream uh, electronic right. movie scores. Made me think of Blade Runner a little bit, which just made yeah. me think of the, uh, the new Blade Runner trailer and uh, mm-hmm. all the commentary around the fact that people are saying the new Blade Runner is going to suck compared to the original. When the original sucked, and this is going to be way better, I'm just going to say that. I just want to put that <laughs> out there. But yeah, no, um, I love the score. It, it's beautiful. I was actually, as, as I do often, I, I kind of put on the score on YouTube while I'm uh, writing the synopsis, and I, I definitely did that mm-hmm. this time. I definitely will uh, kind of put that on to re-listen to at least a few times before uh, I get I get tired of it. It's it's a it's a great and great little movie score. Interestingly enough, it was nominated for a Razzie as worst score that year. <laughs> well, you know that just shows you what shit the Razzies are so often. Mm-hmm. Because the the thing is, it's interesting and it's not you know it it's it's kind of one of those things where you look back on it now and you say, oh, it's interesting because it's uh, sort of uh, working across purposes to some degree. To mm-hmm. um, because it's electronic and it's kind of of its era, whereas I think at the time maybe you know you see like this kind of neon war thing and you think oh a bluesier score would be a more traditional score, uh, would be a little bit like easier to take and the electronic score kind of takes you out of that and, and puts you in this uh, different headspace. But the whole point is to put you in a different headspace. Like, yeah, that's why it's there, and that's that's the sort of thing where um, I mean you know for all of the things where like you know the Razzie is sort of the fun thing. It's fun to kind of think about, oh, yeah, the worst thing ever, you know, and uh, just kind of make you think. <laughs> uh, so often it's based around, like, a very superficial reading of a film. Oh, yeah. You know? I, I mean, it, I, it's, it's totally, I can see it's totally based around a bunch of idiots who think, oh, yeah, uh, this, is a, this is a crime film. It should have some sort of score that we're familiar with from other crime films. And it doesn't, so it's obviously terrible. Have you watched any of the Cinema Sins videos just just on this topic, just to extend this episode a bit? Because I think we're wrapping up, and we should really not do an hour long episode. We should do at least ninety minutes on the episode. But have you ever <laughs> watched any of the Cinema Sins videos? Uh, I think I've seen a few. Try to 
jog my memory here. No, there's, I know it's a YouTube channel, it's right? It's a YouTube channel, and it's just like they like account for like they they give a film sins, quote unquote, for you know like why is it such and such? It's hard to think of an example just off kind of off the top of my head, but it's all mm-hmm. like incredibly superficial, stupid shit. They miss everything interesting about a film. And one of my favorite YouTube channels is Sean and Jen. And uh, Sean, Sean and Jen have done. Uh, Sean is kind of the main person on that channel right now, but Sean has done an amazing series, like criticizing Cinema Sins and like why Cinema Sins <laughs> is wrong about everything by going through their like Mad Max Fury Road and The Empire Strikes Back, and like they'll say, "Well, why, why is the gun you why why does uh, Furiosa have a gun on the outside of the uh, the the truck?" And the answer is, well, Furiosa has guns all over the fucking place. And so, of course, yeah. that's, you know, it's it's so fucking stupid. And so I think about that, like, that is what mainstream film criticism in terms of, like, what gets a lot of clicks kind of has come down to at this point. It's this, mm-hmm. like, model of we're going to just pick at little details of films and right. ignore any kind of like cultural context. And like somebody shoot me in the head if I ever start doing that. Let's just leave it at that because like <laughs> that is not the way that we should be viewing stories in cinema and you know they're like it's one thing to kind of criticize and say this is fun to talk about, but yeah. it's such like that's what internet culture does is focus on like superficial nonsense and uh, yeah. it disgusts me. Um, yeah, which has nothing to do with Thief, but um, everything to do with the fact that it got a Razzie <laughs> for worst score. It's not that this is new, but the internet has just made it the predominant mode of like communication. Yeah, yeah well, er- everybody can do it now instead of a small group of selective idiots. So yeah, yeah, yeah. All all the idiots can get on, in on it now. Right, right. Uh, so uh, the screenplay for this was adapted from the novel The Home Invaders, written by uh, Frank Horimer, who was a professional thief, and he was serving time in prison while this film was being made. <laughs> <laughs> Which so there you definitely go. accounts for some of the verisimilitude. Like, yeah, no. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was. Vault... I, I am interested in reading that book actually. If I can find it, yeah, cheap, I'll, I'll definitely well, wonder... pick it up and, and give it a look because. Uh, I'll bet that the I'll bet that some of these elements, um, depending on how closely it was adapted, I'll bet that some of that was uh, taken from the the film or from the yeah. from the book. Like the, from the book, yeah. I'll bet the Okla relationship is so mm-hmm. fully a support for one thing. Like that, it feels truncated. I I, I mean, I love Willie Nelson. I love uh, him in the film. I think he's great. Yeah. I think that there is a sort of uh, thematic heft, but it is sort of like, why is this 15 minutes in this movie? It isn't really relevant to the overall structure of the thing, you know? Yeah, I, I think if you look at a film like Heat, I think that improves on the sort of interpersonal relationships between thieves uh, a lot better. But, then, like you, but that's you get also a, three it, hours long. <laughs> yeah, well, that too, yeah. but uh, <laughs> So it's either, um, it's either cut it or make it longer. But I understand in 1981, he didn't exactly have that option, you know. No, no. The vault which Frank breaks into in the opening scene was a real vault purchased at cost of $10,000, specifically so that James Conn could break into it using the tools and techniques supplied by uh, John Santucci, who was the guy who basically supplied most of these tools. All the tools used in it were all authentic for the sort of stuff thieves were using at the time to break into into, uh, vaults and banks and shit like that. And uh, the actors were all trained to use them. So, you know, James Conn ever wanted to uh, get into a different career at that point. He 
probably could have done it. <laughs> I, I love to think of that. Like listen to that. I think about Robert De Niro and Raging Bull. Like could have become like a professional boxer. Like that's how hard he trained. I like to think this is that version of that, you know, where you know, James Conn, like if this movie had failed, he would have just gone on and been like, well, now I'm going to rob, I'm going to rob banks. It's going to be great. Right, right. Budget for this was five, was 5.5 million. Box office was modest, but it was uh, eventually uh, 11.49 million uh, domestic anyway. Sure. So it did, it did all right. I mean, it was, um, it was a moderately budget, budgeted film that made its yeah. money back and did what it was supposed to do. And people got careers out of it you know yeah dvd info for this uh you can get the thief special director's edition from 2006 from mgm that's the one i have i would not suggest you get that one because it looks like shit (laughs) There, there was a 1996 or 98 release previous from mgm that was not anamorphic at all and it just looked like crap and i'm pretty much sure they just sort of upgraded it here with a different cut because there is a there's a slight cut between the director's cut and the theatrical edition that's like just one minute of difference or something like what's that the, so what's like, the difference do you know i i don't know okay. I, I didn't bother looking because it's like one minute like who gives a fuck yeah. <laughs> but uh yeah i i really... got this one illegally so i i don't know which version i watched but uh yeah the the, the mgm 2006 it's probably the most widely available one if you really, you know, if you just want to get it on the cheap. But I would suggest if you have a Blu-ray player, upgrade to the Criterion Collection Blu-ray from 2014. Apparently that's the definitive edition right now. That's, I, I saw some picture comparisons between that and the uh, MGM one, and wow, it's like literally night and day. <laughs> the the MGM uh, one is just way too dark, uh, too dark and too dirty. And, I mean, this was a film that was filmed mostly in, in the dark with almost just totally natural lighting, so it really doesn't look good on the old DVD. Yeah, yeah. I Actually, that is the version now. I, I think, uh, yes, now it did have the Criterion uh, mm. uh, logo at the front. So, yeah, that is the version right I on. watched. And, uh, yeah, the version I watched looked pretty gorgeous. So I was, um, I was, God, I can't even imagine watching this in a really shitty... Yeah, it it almost looks like a v, just like a just a straight up VHS rip and burned to a DVD. It's, it's, it looks that kind of that bad. Yeah. So, so and uh, just just to I mean to talk about the look of it. I mean, man is very obviously th- this is the thing that he's going to end up doing through his career is to do this mm-hmm. gorgeous night photography. Yeah. My actual I mean my favorite uh, just the look of Michael Mann's films. The, my favorite is actually Collateral. Um, yeah, which is, I mean, shot digital, but I mean, just in that era of digital at that, but I mean, just looks fucking gorgeous, regardless of how you feel about the film itself, man, that was how to do this night photography. And, um, this is, I mean, you could put this right next to that or right next to heat or right next to Miami vice. And I mean, it's all one of the same and it's, it's very, um, indicative of man's style. And it's, it's kind of fascinating to see that like he was doing this, this well in 1981. It's, yeah, you know. I think I think one of my favorite shots of all time from Man is just like a really simplistic shot, but it sucks you right into the world. It's in heat. It's right after uh, De Niro and and his crew try to uh, kill Wayne Grow, who was the uh, the loose cannon mm-hmm. who who ended up killing a couple people in the initial heist. And they got him out in the parking lot and they're looking for him. He disappears, and then they look for him, and the camera moves off beyond the parking lot into another parking lot. All you can see is the sort of the, the lights in the distance 
uh, just the sort of L.A. skyline, and you can just hear some sort of like wind and I think some rain going, and it's just a really beautiful shot, and it's it almost just for me encap- encapsulates man's visual style when he when he's shooting uh, during the nighttime. Yeah, I mean people talk about man, but uh, and, and particularly his visual style, but uh, yeah, he he definitely deserves all that accolade. It's it's pretty mm-hmm. brilliant. So go with God there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so unless we have anything else to uh, say about this film, other than it's awesome and <laughs> you should be watching it if you haven't watched it already. Uh, we were we were gonna do another film with this in this episode, and uh, we just didn't have the time to watch it. So uh, sorry, yeah. this is a short one, guys. But you know. Yeah, we were going to do The Asphalt Jungle, but I just did not have the time to do two films this week, so we cut her down. Yeah, uh, which yeah. was which was good for both of us, because I ultimately really only had the time for one as well. Um, I could have mm-hmm. made time for two, but I, I, I only really had time for one, so it's fine. Yeah, uh, our next episode will probably be, well, it actually is going to be two weeks away. We're going to be doing Zodiac with Mike Murphy from Badass's Boobs and Body Counts. That's uh, basically set in stone at this point, so look forward to that. That should be a fun episode. Who knows how long that one will go. It depends on uh, whether Mike can tolerate us going off on tangents for for a long while or if he, he, he keeps us reined in on yeah, our that, own podcast. That, that, that might happen. I mean, you know, yeah. for me, I think that film, that, that podcast episode should go at least as long as the film itself. I think we should have a three-hour and 15-minute podcast episode for Zodiac. But I think Mike Murphy is going to try to get us to, like, 32 minutes. So um, yeah. I think in the end we're going to end up kind of, like, around around 90 minutes. That's my guess. Probably, yeah. But uh, that should be a lot of fun. We'll look forward to that. Of course, then after that we're going to be doing Jackie Brown, and then we're moving on to our commentary for the original Night of the Living Dead. So, uh, Which is going to be great. And we yeah. won't do any more crime films for a while. No, we're going to be doing some horror stuff after that for a while. Yeah. We're going to, you know, just get all this this crime stuff out of our system. But uh, it, it should be a lot of fun. Uh, but until then, Daniel, tell people where they can find you. Yeah, you can find me on uh, probably the best way is just to follow me on Twitter. I'm at Daniel E. Harper. And uh, all my stuff is going to go up there. Anything anything I write. I've got some writing projects I'm finally going to come into fruition, hopefully very soon. And, um, you know, any podcasting I do, everything goes up there. So... Just follow me at Daniel Lee Harper on Twitter. Right on. And, of course, you can find us at tmbdos.podbean.com. That is the best place to get all of our links to, well, I guess it's not iTunes anymore. I guess it's Apple Podcasts now, apparently. Is it really? Uh, <laughs> yeah, apparently that's the whole brand. You still go to iTunes.whatever, and it still takes you there, right? But right. now it's supposed to be, you're supposed to call it Apple Podcast now or something like that. So iTunes, iTunes is... It's like a decade old at this point. Like, yeah. they're really trying to, you know, just rebrand the whole thing. Like, that's ridiculous. They they don't need to rebrand it. They need to make it fucking functional for people to use. <laughs> they, need, what they, they, need. they need to stop trying to vendor lock in people who don't actually own Apple products. Like, yeah. I have never used iTunes for anything because I don't own an Apple product. And mm-hmm. I... Go fuck yourself. I will find other ways around all my things that I need podcasts for. Yeah, yeah. Like for me, MP3 player. I just get a just just a off brand burner MP3 player, and you can just replace it for cheap whenever. I, I don't want to be stuck in iTunes fucking grip of uh, yeah, <laughs> servitude. Yeah. And it's not even that 
well functioning a website. Like even when I go and like try to download things with like it only works if you have all your stuff that's like completely built around their system and then you know if you if you do anything not the way they want you to do it then uh you might as well not exist to them. And right. Yeah. Should you choose to look us up on Apple Podcasts and you don't mind using their clunky bullshit interface, please drop us a five-star uh, rating and uh, write us a nice little review. And if you do, if you're outside of Canada, by the way, just fucking let me know so I can change the uh, region coding on it so I can actually read your review and uh, we'll read it on the air. Have we ever gotten a review on uh, Apple Podcasts? We, we have gotten one from Mike Murphy. Okay, well, thank you to Mike Murphy, but yeah, yeah, yeah it's kind of remarkable. Like we've been doing that for two years, and like one review. <laughs> yeah, I think you've said that in every single episode. So um, I think it's not going to happen at this point. I, I think it's. I think. I think. I think we've uh, we found our audience. I'm very happy for our audience, but um, yeah. just just think of me as a naive James Con, just trying to trying to try to get that postcard to become a reality that's that's what it is that, that's that, that, that's how it goes I, you know after we do 100 episodes that's the point at which we're going to get a million downloads a week yeah and then then I'll 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 be unhappy and I'll burn it all to the ground yeah it'll be fine i mean i yeah. i will take that audience and then move on and do something else and make money off of it <laughs> <laughs> i'll quit my job if we get a million downloads a week i will i will monetize this shit instantly don't worry it's gonna happen. And, and 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 by the way, speaking of money, Daniel, do you like to eat? I do. Well, you should jo- sign up for blueapron.com. No, you should just <laughs> fuck right off. Is what you should do. No, stamps.com. Stamps.com. That's stamps.com. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Audible trial. Audible trial. Yeah. Know. There's an Audible trial that doesn't have our name on it, but uh, you know, go and check out Audible. Give Amazon your money. Read a book, motherfucker. Read a motherfucking book. All right, I, I think it's about time we end this fucking yeah, yeah, charade. Yeah, it's time. Yeah, we're, we're done. <laughs> There's no no money goes to anyone on this podcast. It's fine. No. Um, we this, uh, this is just my excuse to talk to Lee about a movie every week. It's fine. Like, it's great. Yeah. So uh, thank you, Daniel, and thank you, everyone, for listening. And we will be back in two weeks with Zodiac. Goodbye. Bye.
Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. For past episodes and links to our iTunes, YouTube, and Facebook group, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can also find links to other podcasts and websites of similar interest. If you subscribe to us on iTunes, please consider giving us a five-star rating and a review. Please join our Facebook group as it's the single best place to get in contact with the hosts and to know what's coming up on the podcast. Thank you. Drive through.